Hi, you're listening to Talking About Organizations, a podcast about management and organization studies where we read and discuss foundational texts and key ideas that inform the way we think about organized work today. Talking About Organizations is a community resource supported by our listeners. To find out how and learn more about our program, visit our website at www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. We also thank the Management Learning Journal for their wonderful support. Now on with the show. Welcome to episode 98, where we will examine a classic book by Tom Burns and GM Stalker titled The Management of Innovation, published in 1961 by Tavistock Publications Limited. This is part one of the episode where we present the major findings in the book regarding how the introduction of new ideas and new technologies ignited conflict and power struggles within organizations. To learn more about the text, please go to our website at www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. Hi, this is Tom calling from Carlisle, Pennsylvania in the United States. And this is Pedro Monteiro coming to you from Copenhagen. This is Leonardo coming from Sao Paulo, Brazil. And uh, welcome, everyone. And this is our final recording of uh, the 2022. And we have chosen a really interesting and uh, sometimes pretty difficult to read, dense book, uh, let's be honest. But it's a very important book. Tom Burns and GM Stalkers, The Management of Innovation. So this book is a classic from 1961. And what it does, it's less about how to manage innovation, but basically the state of affairs of what was going on as innovation was introduced in organizations and how managers were trying to figure out how to grapple with it. And as a result, some of the political factors and other factors that made it difficult for organizations to be able to leverage new ideas, new technologies, new whatever. This book is a compilation of findings and studies done on organizations trying to introduce these new ideas into their organization. Why didn't they work? Why didn't it work? And it wasn't just individual organizations. In some cases, it was either whole industries or the case of a nation trying to enter, shall we say, the innovation market. So it's a very, very far-reaching book with a lot of implications for innovation. And it's one of those that finds its way into a lot of uh, more uh, subsequent studies or more contemporary studies on innovation. Pedro, you want to give us a quick run down on some of the, you know, the way the book was set up? Yeah, sure. I think we will come back in a second about why innovation was becoming important. But before we do that, I would like to offer a bit of a contextualization. So the study that Thomas references was the study of different firms in Scotland and England. I think one interesting thing that you can see in this book is the empirical richness. It's all based in fieldwork in multiple settings, right? And one of the things interesting is that there is some variability because they are looking at organizations that not only are in slightly different positions in the market, but also are entering the market with different histories and backgrounds and in different moments and in different type of settings. So not only there is deep engagement with these organizations, but also the variation. I think it's key for the richness that the book puts forward. And as Tom was saying, this is not a how-to book, of course. It's more of a big monograph, similar to some of the others we have covered in the podcast, like Patterns of Bureaucracy by Goldner. And it is published in an important moment because it was the moment in which organizational theory 
was being set up, so to speak, right? I think this was the, the authors are bringing ideas a lot from across the social sciences, from psychology, from economists, but you can see that they are trying to think through them in an organizational manner. And we're going to talk more about that in a second. And I think that the book has three at least key areas. I wouldn't say ideas because there are many ideas inside them. One, and that's how the book starts, it's trying to provide a general historical contextual detail on how and what ways have the studies that led up to it have been carried out, what is the importance of such study in this particular historical context, what is what's happening in industry, and as Tom was referring to, the importance of innovation for organizations and businesses. And then there is both an interesting presentation of empirical detail through particular frameworks and analysis, and the most famous one here, and the reason why the book is famous, is the distinction between mechanistic and organic management systems, later talked about in terms of organizational forms or structures, and also some reflections about the different roles of dimension and aspects of organizations, from the political dynamics to the social backgrounds to the role of leaders, in the functioning of such organizations and in the way in which they lead or don't lead, prevent or make possible the performance of firms within such management systems, right? So I think that is the kind of the overall idea of the book, trying to understand innovation, trying to go through all these rich details and extract from them interesting analytical insights and also to show a little bit of how this plays out in this different population of organizations and the struggles and systems through which they implement in order to be able to innovate. Yeah, and uh, also I think the introduction does a good job of laying out some of the initial findings, which to them, you know, thinking again back to the state of organization theory at the time, things that were surprising to them. And uh, as a resonant theme throughout the book, it's sort of like an expressions of surprise as to the extent to which political and social factors got in the way of good ideas coming to fruition. And when I'm talking about political factors, it includes things like the relationships between those who are innovating and the management or other members of the organization the roles of managers and how it could be threatened. As a matter of fact, it reminds, uh, some of it is very reminiscent of the Shoshana Zuboff episode that we just did, where in a similar fashion, introductions of new technologies cause some disruption to power structures or whatever. But that was in the context of information technologies. This is more uh, just sort of in more of the industrial processes. So there's there's a lot of parallels there, I think, as well. Maybe step back. Uh, the first thing that got my attention was the distinction between invention and innovation and how they discuss the, the evolution of British industry in terms of a lonely inventor putting out something new, how innovation has to be planned in these new settings. And uh, it is because of the uh, more complex technologies that this new industry was dealing with. So this is interesting because we know about that since Schumpeter in the 20s, you know, that innovation is not invention, it's something that it needs to be planned. The first time that I, I saw a study that dwells in this, uh, how innovation is actually done. 
there is a lot of political struggle involved in that. It is not the techno only the techno side of it, but maybe the techno side is not that important. The ideas was running. Maybe the organization that will will foster more innovative practices that will solve the political conflicts that come along with it. So I am familiar with innovation studies, and this is something that maybe they they were the first to to stress the idea that to have a more innovative setting, you have to have a more I I will not say democratic one, but a more there you have to build more fluid information structures to to put all your workers together and so maybe in the literature more a more modern literature on innovation especially in the information technology sector but not back in the 60s you know this was not something that that was so common you know you have that idea of the difference of innovations that you have now this R&D department but you are not familiar what happens inside these departments, the black box of innovation, as they say. So the, the unique feature about classics and foundational works is exactly what Leonardo is saying, right? We get to see the authors articulating the importance of what they're trying to do. And I was also surprised that they start, of course, trying to articulate why innovation has become so important for organizations. And also, and that's, you know, the key takeaway lesson from the book, one of them at least, is that how you organize matters. So first, about why innovation matters. And I think there's something about, and they tell a bit of a quick historical um, account in showing that you cannot just depend on smaller labs and the coordination of information in societies, in fields, but innovation is becoming more resource intensive, there's more specialization, and because you need a bigger setup to do that. You cannot just rely on the survival that exists, right? It's an important dimension or function for organizations in which they need to be continuously innovate. So they set up resources and they organize for that. And that requires making sure that this is not just a one-shot type of activity, but it has to become one something that is done in a sustained manner. And together with that, and I think that's why it all becomes, you know, complicated and interesting, is that we are in the post-war period, right? And a lot of the discussions that exist, they are trying to show that the firms that they studied, they are trying to come up with this thing of the market to deal with more dynamic, not only technologies and more complex technologies, but also customer preferences and all sorts of logistics involved into that. So in this complex context in which innovation is becoming something that is related to the survival of the organization, and it's something that is organized more and more in large scale through specialized personnel with resource intensive type of setup, then that's why it becomes part and parcel of the way industry works, right? And I think the interesting thing that they show is exactly that how innovation becomes a concern for all types of citizen organizations and the challenge that many organizations have in trying to come to terms with that. Yeah, and I also took note of uh, how that post-World War II setting set the stage for uh, a shift from where a lot of the impetus for innovation was coming from because it was uh, it was largely driven by government at the time. But then as you know in the post-war period and government spending and the government and the urgency for government spending for you know military applications, you know uh, new capabilities in order to win the ongoing war, that dried up. 
And then what next? You know, now you're talking about uh, shifting into the commercial marketplace and trying to develop, you know, now you've got all of these people who have demands, they have needs and consumer goods. That was obviously a big time where consumer goods were, uh, or production of consumer goods were very significant and everybody was trying to beat everyone. So the purpose for good ideas shifted. This is at the tail end of that initial wave, 1961. So there's a lot that he points out as far as how the organizations were adapting or needed, felt they need to adapt, and yet were not necessarily adapting as they went. They were trying to do old styles of management for this new context, which affected, in a negative sense, in a lot of ways, the way in which they were able to do both development and production of new goods. I also want to, going back to one of the other things, Leonardo, that you pointed out too, was this there's there's also a mythology that the Burns and Stalker bring out early on about who does the innovation and the myth of the what they called the myth of the 19th century hermit inventor. They showed how this idea that you know in order to be an inventor you had to be this eccentric separate individual off in their lab no interaction or whatever is like a, and and inventions just flow out from this lab. That cultural artifact persisted for a long time. And that in itself, they show how that that attitude towards who who's an inventor and what is their role in the organization pervaded and sort of contributed to how the relationships between innovators within an organization and the rest of the organization, you know, those relationships, it colored those uh, as this period was ongoing. And uh, I had never thought about that. I mean, the... I, I know the trope of the mad scientist was really popular in the beginning of the 20th century. It didn't occur to me to the extent to which that really shaped how organizations actually thought about innovation. Yeah, th- this is interesting because they stress this, that there is a, a shift in the British university scenario. You have a lot of changes in, not change, but you have a lot more knowledge production in England and I think they stress this more in England because you start to have more journals, for example. You start to have more professionals. And this is something that is different. Now you are dealing with professionals with a common language, a common knowledge, and they exchange this knowledge between them and put this into work in these innovation uh, labs. And contrary of this idea of the lonely inventor, you have an institutional setting. You have a new institutions that are evolving and becoming more complex. And it's the function of industry to understand this institution is to adapt itself to, to this new setting, not the other way, I think. If I'm not mistaken I mean, in my understanding of the book, this is something that is very difficult to explain. And they try an, uh, an explanation that is different for you uh, what you have in, in the 60s, that you have a lot of more the deterministic way to explain the relation between institutions because uh, you have a lot of studies in that time that say that, oh, the in- industry is requiring more professionals, so the universities will adapt to this. But I think what they are saying is that you have this change in, in the institutional context of English system of formation, uh, like of qualifications, and then the industry are adapting to this looking to where there's the knowledge that's coming from, how to adapt this. And so, let's they say, it's a process, not a, it's a continuum, not a one thing or other influencing, but they are uh, at the same time influencing each other. And that's why organizational matters, 
both, as Tom was saying, because we still today, unfortunately, I think sometimes fall back on this idea of the lonely genius, right? And I think it's important that the book is entitled The Management of Innovation, not Innovators. <laughs> and, you know, for anyone interested in this, they can just check the work of Andrew Hargadon, for example, about Edison and showing that, of course, what we usually attribute to a person is actually a product of a collective, right? And that collective was able to bring about so much innovation because of a series of organizational processes and including an ability to understand that it was not just about coming up with a new idea, but understanding how that's going to be produced, how it's going to be consumed, how it's going to be sold, what is going to be the demand, which are all different functions usually of an organization. So multiple considerations attached to the work of multiple people that are involved and need to be orchestrated to bring about something novel into the world and be sold and be taken up and used. I think also another thing that reflection on what you both just said is that this process Leonardo was talking about is an organizational process because the extent in which the innovation lab is close or far from the different areas of the organization, the extent in which people are promoted, the different potential linking mechanisms, whether there is intermediaries or people corresponding directly, the extent in which there is some common language across the different departments and different people, the extent in which different departments and units or different groups are just throwing over the wall whatever that their different parts that they are doing, all matter enormously. And I think the interesting thing to say in the book is how they document that and show that the variation in the ways of organizing have an impact. And that I think that one of these variations is a response to what Leonardo was saying, that the wisdom back then was that if industry changes, organizations change, but they are able to show, as I said in the beginning, because they have all this rich sample of different organizations across the country in different stages, dealing with different kinds of products, we can see that this change is not automatic. And it's exactly what they're trying to explain, and that's one of the ways through which the book is known, is the interlink between organization and context. It's one of the central contributions to the idea of contingency that we talked about in the podcast when we talked about the work of Lawrence and Lorsch and many others, that the connection and the embeddedness of the organization in the context matters and it's important to take in consideration the different contingencies, the different type of tasks, the different kinds of customers and all different type of technology at play in the way we organize. So the book is getting at that, or the work and the struggles to be able to adjust and also how this adjustment happens in different ways across a big sample and the way in which this interlink, although challenging, is fundamental, especially in this particular period in time, as organizations depend more and more of the resources, the different customers, and so on. And, I mean, this has all, if anything, accelerated to our current period. Absolutely. But one of the things that they did up front, which I think is good, you know, I said that uh, at the beginning of this episode that, uh, you know, this is largely an explanation or an analysis of what was going on with innovation. They do offer some suggestions, some practical suggestions. And one of them that uh, is right there on page nine, paraphrasing a bit, that the fewer stages and the fewer interpreters and mediaries that you have in between the idea and the production, the better off you're going to be. 
that's one of the conclusions that they drew. Because one of the things that they show in the book is how the, there is a tendency sometimes because of power relations that could be uh, impacted. Power relations can be impacted. There's a tendency to start collaboration becomes an end to itself. You end up with more intermediaries, more people who have their hands on the decision making or whatever, which gets in the way of innovation and makes it much more cumbersome to get from idea to production. But what I really liked about, say, the middle part of the book, it's part two, Organization and Change. They set up chapters where they're concentrating on particular relationships where these strains may start to appear. There's a chapter on the laboratory and the workshop, which is preluding the difference between those who are generating and testing the ideas in basic research versus those who would be the development. And then they talk about the difference between the development system and the production system, and that there is a tension there where you can have developers starting to impose themselves on the production process. So then the idea folks are imposing themselves on the assembly line, which creates chaos. Tensions between industrial scientists and managers and how the production of ideas becomes status building or makes the scientists have more, not just status, but also how they become exceptions to the way that the rest of the organization, the rules under which the rest of the organization follows which then creates tension, creates problems, creates conflict. Although we may have said that this, this could be a difficult book to read, each of the chapters, I think, independently, do come at particular problem spaces pretty well. You know, it's just a matter of how well you can put it all together to derive what might be, if you were to use this, what might you be looking for to try to help with an organization improve their innovation. So it's interesting because I like this, you know, the setup and the different ways that they see, as you were saying, the different strains is very interesting. But I think that reading the book with our eyes today and is an unfair interpretation, we know that with the rich communication technology we have, for example, I think it's less a matter of how many people involved in the chain it is and more about the ability to find synergies, collaboration, sense of common purpose. All of these different themes are across the book, they, they didn't have the language to talk about that. You know, today we would have the language about crossing knowledge boundaries and being able to find a cooperative attitude between the different people and all sorts of personnel which are related themes on that. The ability in which we are able to put the focus on the work process versus the search for status and politics. The way in which people are able to translate and create a common ground in their collaboration. All of these words and vocabulary we have created to understand these different kinds of problems that were already being identified back then. But I just like a quick qualification on, I think, this important wisdom or insight on how bringing these different parts together in the system is fundamental for making the innovation happen, which seems to be the one of the important lessons from the book. Yeah, I agree with you, Pereira. Uh, uh, just an example in what Tom was saying, uh, I really think it's interesting, the distinction that they've made about the basic research and development and all the conflicts that emerge between 
how these two crews interact and the right or proper management of their claims of this team will create an environment with more innovation. In terms how you put ideas into minimal verbal products, for example, how you cross the what they say the valley of death when technologies die and the ideas don't turn into a market that are really interest for the company. And it's very interesting while they hear they talk about this because you have a lot of knowledge out there. You have a lot of communities of that. And the important thing is, like you said, Pedro, before, is to organize to make an environment more friendly to information and communication process. So I don't know. There are, there are a lot of studies right now that are dealing with this, that you have to make teams working with technology and trying to develop more fast way new products. And then you, you, you can fail and then you start over again. The idea is to have more speed in this process of creating new ideas, trying in the market, and then maybe backing up if it's necessary. But it's really important to remember that what they are saying, that the idea of proper ways of communication between different communities, dealing with the same, not the same, but dealing with the knowledge inside the firm. This is very insightful, I think. Maybe it's communication that will that will make us cross the valley of death. And this is something maybe that is not so discussed today. And I, I think it's very insightful. So we talked a little bit about the insights of the book in relation to the study of innovation. But of course, we know that this book has had a huge impact in management, organizational research, and so on. Not only in creating the discipline of org studies, and it's an important building block. But also it was important, as we were referencing before, also on this particular approach to studying organizations, the contingency approach. And I think maybe we can take a moment to talk about that. And I'm going to use the example from Leonardo to start a conversation on that. Because sometimes I feel that this idea of rapid iteration and prototypes and putting things out in the market very quickly, it is more or less applicable to some industries. Probably software, if you're not building something new, Probably less regulated industries in which there is no much concern about safety. So I'm using that as an entryway into the discussion of contingency, which again, I think is fundamental to today is this idea there is no one best way. So the effort by the authors are trying to go beyond Taylorism and beyond with the idea that it's all about just finding the appropriate way. And I think they captured it very well when they say in the book that the beginning of an administrative wisdom is the awareness that there is no one optimal type of management system. And I think that on a theoretical level, the book is not just a defense, but an evidence of that. Because they are trying to show how the different management systems they identified in this population of organizations. And of course, there are geotypes, and they say they're not dichotomic, they're organic and mechanistic, which we can talk about in a second. They apply more or less to particular conditions, and the main factors they consider is the one of change, that in more dynamic spaces, in more rapid type of technologies, the more organic would be the more relevant. But besides that, so before we talk about this very well debated model. I want to still say something about the continuous approach because intellectually, it's interesting to see that what they're trying to do is to say that a lot of previous conversations have looked at both of the formal structure of an organization, the roles and responsibilities, the standards, and so on, 
and try to contrast that with the informal patterns, the different way in which people work together or not. And they reference here the Hawthorne studies, which we have discussed in the podcast already, and saying that, of course, people have their own interpretations, they develop relationships, they do not only abide blindly to the imposed rules, but they developed also group norms about productivity and so on, right? So it's important to consider all this emergent, so to speak, interactive dimension for organizations. But what they show and go beyond is that it's not just a matter of contrasting the formal and informal, and a lot of the literature was looking at that, or even just looking at the organization and saying that you can explain that through different perspectives, but they package that and say, well, what we are witnessing in these different organizations is actually a particular management system that brings together the formal and the informal. So it's not only a particular setup, but the way in which people understand their roles, relate to each other, defer to authority, speak more and understand their you know, participation in a particular process like the innovation process. So I think it's important that there are two moves that are being done. One is connecting the formal and informal, and I think a lot of the richness of the book comes from trying to understand how people carry out their work and trying to take that to see that there are potential different models that organizations can implement that are not in themselves better in abstract, but more or less fit for a particular purpose, a particular context, a particular situation. Absolutely. And uh, this does bring us to the discussion of mechanistic and organic, uh, which if you are a fan of innovation, you would probably come into it saying, oh, one is wrong and one is right. <laughs> and I think that, that sometimes that's, um, that's what people can be guilty of. But let's, let's talk about how they present it. And uh, you're absolutely spot on. This is not a one best way in anything. Mechanistic and organic, just from a definitional standpoint, is they put it, and this is on pages 119 through 121, and they present them as polar extremities, which is to say that they represent a full spectrum of which the pure mechanistic and the pure organic systems are opposites. It, what they do is they contrast them on the normal paradox, what we would understand nowadays is the normal paradoxical tension between continuity and change. Mechanistic is defined as appropriate to stable conditions, which is a rather vague definition, but it's, it serves the purpose. And then the organic, the extreme, is appropriate to changing conditions, equally vague. You can imagine that each organization is sitting somewhere on this spectrum, and they move about that spectrum at a continuous basis. I mean, you don't say stay more stable uh, forever. It's, you know, maybe more stable now. You might have to shift to something that's a bit more changing later or whatever. And he'd present them as 11 contrasting characteristics. Mechanistic, characteristic number one, the specialized differentiation of functional tasks in which the problems and tasks facing the concern as a whole are broken down. Okay, so stable, everything is divided, every task is dividable into subtask. And then on the organic side, it's the contributed nature of special knowledge and experience to the common task of the concern. It's not the negation. It's a whole different way of thinking, you know, where specialized knowledge comes into play. You know, it's, a, it's also about task definition. So you go down all 11 of them, and it includes things like how abstract each individual task is from not to fully 
the role of loyalty to the concern, obedience to superiors, rights, obligations, all of these different things, which you wouldn't really think about as associated with the production and distribution of some particular thing. It's just basically how it's a management system. It's just how management makes decisions, informs, distributes perks, benefits, what have you, shown in a contrasting form. And then just to be really quick about it, they spend the rest, a good chunk of the rest of the book showing that the organizations that they studied had this tendency to take what probably belonged in the organic system because of changing conditions and that they were forcing a mechanistic approach onto it. And surprise, it didn't work. So this is so interesting. And just for the listeners, you know, one way in which, and the authors refer to that themselves, to think about the mechanistic is to think about bureaucratic organizations or bureaucratic structures, whereas the organic would be associated today with this more, I don't know, horizontal type of spaces, slightly more ad hoc, so to speak. So that would be probably the way that people you know, can also describe that. But I thought it was interesting, and again, as I think is a feature of reading the classics, is that we all know it's in every textbook about management, this distinction. But once you read the whole book and you read the chapters in which you discuss this framework, you see so much more. And honestly, if I think that if I were to create the ideal type today, I wouldn't create it like that. Or at least I wouldn't create it the way in which we are known in the textbook. First of all, because I think that what is interesting is that they are paying attention to some dynamic quality, right? So there's a lot of emphasis on interactions, as we were saying before, on the informal and how people are understanding their tasks. And a lot of the way people talk about mechanistic and organic today, it's in a very structuralist manner. But there is a lot of attention to not just what are the tasks like or how is the division of work, that matters. But there's also a lot of attention to what we talk about in terms of the sense of purpose people have in doing their task, the extent in which they're able to experts to have authority, right, in participating in decision-making, the extent in which people find meaningful in their tasks. So there's all these dimensions that are more about the interactive quality of the work itself, not just the pure structure which is sometimes hidden when we talk about this framework in this duality, even though they say that's not one. The other one I think is interesting, and Tom was referring to that, is that because, again, they have all the sample of different firms at different spaces and moments and situations, they can chronicle the challenges of changing and trying to implement one or the other. And there are interesting examples of all sorts of hybridizations that happen, how some organizations become mechanistic at a particular level around particular departments of a particular process versus more organic in others and how they try to walk towards becoming more organic but sometimes there's pushback because of politics and people feel threatened because these these moves sometimes introduce uncertainty in roles and responsibilities and status as well right so there's also this reflection of how not just the one or the other but the attempts to move to one or the others can bring challenges and the way in which trying to do that can lead to pushbacks? Well, that's okay. Uh, let me add uh, also that what they also found very interesting was that the politics or the political aspects were things that were not discussable. That's That the tendency was to avoid or feel that we should not try to address these conflicts as they arise. 
it would have been a little bit different if the natural tendency was that, okay, we have this uh, conflict where the engineers who are doing all of this great idea generation and they're doing some terrific lab work or whatever, and they become more prestigious, it's going to upset the management hierarchy. But there's no desire to actually talk about it. So it becomes a matter of uh, subterfuge or sabotage or other reactions to try to avoid confronting that, hey, we have to change the way that the management is structured, who's who's doing what, who makes what decisions or whatever, because by not discussing it, then you end up with issues that they present in the book, whereas the production or uh, development engineers are imposing on production or the lab gets isolated from the rest of the organization because they're too disruptive, or some of the other pathologies that came out in the cases that they studied. So it's interesting because I almost feel that what they're providing is more of a guideline for a diagnosis and less of a model to be implemented. So I think that's why it's my frustration in how this um, framework is remembered and used sometimes. I think the potentiality that exists in understanding it within the research framework they're putting forward. And exactly what you're saying, Tom, is exactly of, you know, this understanding what happens when you try to implement some process and the others. And one thing I think is interesting is that they say that in the book and a lot of the debate on contingency is about what system fits the context. I think that especially later in the book, they give space for us to see how management has an active role to play. Right. So, of course, to some extent is about the management system as a reflection of the context, but also the space for doing real leadership in terms of leadership as constructing the organization and constructing the way people relate to each other. Right. And I think that is what is also interesting in the book that sometimes is missed. So it's not just about implementing a set of policies, but trying to understand and deal with potential shortcomings and pathologies like Tom was referring to, but also trying to get to people to, for example, understand their participation in the innovation process, making people understand their interdependencies. A lot of the book talks about that, how there are many times given the nature of organizations, innovation requires the participation of multiple functions, but these interdependencies are lost given the complexity. So it's understanding and allowing people to understand and maybe sometimes develop a sense of purpose in understanding their participation into that and how they fit or not, which all things we'll talk about in terms of maybe meaningful work, in terms of, again, we said before, experts having authority in terms of the way people relate to each other and in what meanings they attach to that interactions, right? So it also, I think, provides space to what leaders and managers and not just those, but people across the organization can do in order to make innovation happen, so to speak. Which when we just think we have to be organic, it doesn't capture all this detailed, refined type of um, work that is required. What you say, well, I was thinking that I got a feeling that reading the book where you, I, I think, you know, I'm organic, the organic way, it's better to deal with uncertainty, to develop a new product. But in terms of management, when conflicts arise, people tend to retreat to make a mechanics uh, way of organizing. So I think the authors put the, they don't give a, a, a right answer, as you, you mentioned, the, the, that 
you quote the book, it's the wisdom of going further or backing up, put your management discontinued. But I, I don't know if I, why do you guys think that? When conflicts arise, people prefer mechanics. There is a saying or, or there is a quote. It's a, be it's a better way to do it because the guy is there if you need him. The people are there to have to be asked for something and not, uh, you don't have to talk to everybody in the organization about something. So if you reach a high level of innovation in your organization, maybe the conflicts will rise and innovation will be considered a threat. And this could make your organization prefer, uh, like a Taylorism in spite of the fact of the other. The other system is more visible to complexity. Well, what I wonder is uh, one of the things about Burns and Stalker's mechanistic and organic systems is that I think you can paint a picture of an organization that does a lot of innovation, but is still very mechanistic in its approach to management. And those would be cases where the market or the, the requirements are stable enough where you can basically channel innovative activity into a specified segment of the organization and then leave the rest of the organization alone. You can keep some of the same power, prestige, a lot of the old ways of doing business kind of intact without having to go fully organic. And militaries, I think, do that a lot. When we look at military innovation, And how in many cases, like if you're talking about trying to develop a new weapon system, there is a push to try to keep it mechanistic because the risk to the rest of the organization in their ability to do their mission it has to be managed very carefully. And so you can have a lot of innovation go on in an organization that is mechanistic. It's just like as Pedro was saying, this is situation dependent or context dependent. Now, of course, if the conditions change, then, well, maybe that's not the way to go. You know, like uh, if you're talking about building up against a known threat situation, then your planned approach could very well be more effective. But to recognize that, you now if uh, the situation is changing so rapidly, like think about how rapid things happened in uh, with the Arab Spring in 2010 or with uh, the COVID pandemic where changing conditions meant a different need or a different style of innovation. So I think, uh, you know, the recognition, you know, the challenge is recognizing not just where you are on this spectrum, but also where you should be based on what you recognize as the situation around you and in trying to align. That's tough, you know? And so sometimes in the tough cases, we end up with defaulting to what we think is the one best way, if that makes sense. It does. And I think that's one of my few frustrations with the book is that I don't know if this by design or the way, you know, it was wrote for any reason, but we don't see a, as much as the intra-organization variation. It is hinted at, but we don't see as much how these different organizations, what they're doing, how they're set up in different ways, in different parts of the organization, right? And I understand it because they say that they're trying to not just think by organization, they use this unique vocabulary, like a concern, I think we'd call it today a process. So the different units and groups involved in the innovation process, which can sometimes fall within an unit or department or can be across units and sometimes can be, you know, just particular division or can sometimes be across division. So they're trying to go beyond just the structure and saying the people involved in making innovation happen that can be 
have different configurations. But again, because we don't get the detail, we don't see things like Tomer saying, are some departments having a different setup because they're doing the earlier phase of the innovation versus order, right? Is there a specificity by a particular type of products you're designing? Or is, this, is there any specifics given the professionals involved at particular moments? Does it varies by particular phases, right? So we miss a little bit of that. And of course, it only makes sense. A book can only do so much. But I think I want to reflect a little bit on this point that we default to what we know and this whole idea that we go back to the mechanistic, right? There is something that I really like that Perot says, that we have this weird thing that sometimes we complain about red tape and rules and hierarchies, but, you know, we say that in one breath, but in the next breath we ask, who is in charge around here? And uh, what are the processes, right? So there is this thing about trying to create order, especially in a complex situation. So there's something of that, which again, I think that's another thing that sometimes is lost in the book, because when I read it today with our eyes, I think that a lot of what Burton Stalker are admonishing is to showcase the importance of getting people to understand purpose, to be collaborative, to be able to understand their role in such a thing, to be able to communicate better, you know? And they are, of course, contrasting that to a bureaucratic, mechanistic, very authoritarian type of settings because that's the one they had that was was prevalent. But I think that the stark contrast doesn't help as much because it's not an either-or, meaning remove those rules and procedures and let everything ad hoc flourish because we know from research that's not going to happen necessarily. It's not that you're going to get synergy if you remove all job descriptions. So it's more, I see at least, it's almost like a matter of layers. So it's getting such infrastructure that is in place and we seem to go back. And of course, the point is that we know there are multiple ways to have from job descriptions or write down procedures and bring people together and create policies, not just a one way to design the formal structures. But of course, again, this is a little bit missed because we're in the 60s, because you know they're doing a contrast. So there is both, I think, an important recognition of the variations in the mechanistics elements, but also on how, as I see it, all the features which seem to be important for the organic to make innovation happen, which are more important in particular contexts, are more about the relationships that come, the values people hold, the way they interpret their particular participation in the systems. How do they see their role in relationship to each other? So it's, I almost see it as more a layering type of challenging, so to speak. The default, so to speak, is not just going back, but this inability to go over the edge and realize something and get to the next level. So at least that's how I see it. And that concludes the episode for today. Thank you for listening. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of their respective organizations or institutions. We hope that you enjoyed the conversation and found it valuable. And if so, please consider subscribing through your favorite podcast service and you won't miss an episode. We also welcome your feedback, so if you liked or didn't like something, or have a correction or suggestion for us, please get in touch via Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or our website, www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. Again, thank you for listening, and we hope to see you for the conclusion of this episode here on Talking About Organizations. Talking About Organizations.